Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Christmas is upon us, and because it is, we are spending some time seeking to prepare our hearts and minds to rejoice and to truly be able to celebrate the arrival of the Lord Jesus into the world. We're back in Matthew 2, which is the same passage we looked at last week with the wise men from the east who came to worship Jesus. Uh, I have been having you stand. I'll give you a break today. We're going to read the whole chapter in Matthew chapter 2. So follow with me as I read Matthew 2. And remember, this is the Word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. All right, so we were in the first portion of this passage last week. Anybody remember what we talked about? Wise men. What about the wise men? 
They were Gentiles. They were wise men from the East. Uh, this was, you know, 2,000 years ago, and, and for the 2,000 years leading up to that point, God had primarily been dealing in relationship with the nation of Israel, with Jews. But in Gentile, if you don't know, just means non Jew, all those other than the Jewish people. Uh, so here we have these Gentiles from the East who come to worship the Lord, and this is one of the first things that happens, as, as we're told, you know, after he's born. What this shows and what we talked about last week is that Christmas is about missions. It's about God's global mission to save His people, which are not just from the nation of Israel, but from all nations under heaven. Not just from the twelve tribes of Israel, but from all tribes of people all over the world. Not just from the Jewish people, but from every people group. Uh, Not just the Hebrew language, but every language. So the prophets of Israel, we talked about last week, they foretold the coming of the Messiah. This was hundreds of years prior to Jesus being born. And He was going to be the Savior King who would take God's long-promised salvation, promised all the way back with Abraham, and He would take it to the ends of the earth, even to every family of the earth. And we see that beginning to take shape with the wise men as these Gentiles from the East come. It's not just with Israel anymore, but, but these other nations as well. So one thought from the text is that Christmas is about missions. Another thought that I want us to be thinking about today is that Christmas is a reminder of the sovereignty and providence of God. Uh, for those, those are big words. For those that don't know what they mean, when we say that God is sovereign, we mean that He has complete control. Uh, over everyone and everything, big and small. So from the atoms and the molecules to the nations and, and empires of nations to planets and galaxies, times and seasons, seconds and minutes, God is in absolute control of everything. Nothing is outside of His control God is sovereign. He is in control of all things. God's providence is related to God's sovereignty, but it's not exactly the same. So where sovereignty may tell us about just the fact of God's power and control, providence is, the, uh, is God's planning and ordering and the execution of His sovereign will in the world. So if you take the examples of the wise men and the star that led the wise men to Jesus. God is sovereign over the stars. Uh, He has absolute control over everything, including the stars. He can do with the stars as He pleases. He threw them up there. He can throw them down if He likes. Now, He has set them in a normal order. He has set them on their course. And they, you know, they mind their... uh, they, They obey. They do what He has told them to do. But he can take them out of their normal order too if he wants because they're his stars and he can do with them as he likes. He can move them across the sky if he wants. And so when he actually exercises that sovereignty in the ordering of events to accomplish his purposes, that is his providence on display. So in his perfect providence, God led those wise men with that star on that day to worship Jesus. Make sense? The distinction makes sense between the two? Any questions? Anyone awake? (laughs) 
Alright. Now, God's sovereignty and providence are not explicitly taught in the text, uh, but they are clearly evident in the text. And uh, they're clearly taught elsewhere in the Scriptures. A few verses for you. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. God is sovereign over all. He declares what's going to happen, and then He makes it happen. And nobody's stopping Him. He does what He wills. Or how about more familiar, Romans 8.28, All things work together for the good of those that love God who are called according to His purpose. Well, how do all things work together for our good? Because God governs all things according to His sovereign plan, His sovereign purposes in the world, and He works out all things for the good of His people. Or Romans 11.36, For from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. To God be the glory forever. So, while the sovereignty of God and the providence of God are not explicitly taught in the passage today, they're clearly taught elsewhere, and we should assume them everywhere. Uh, And when we're looking, I think we can see them pretty clear in the text today. As with the star and the wise men, um, it's not explicitly stated that God moved the star. Okay, But we know that God made the stars. We know that God set them on their course. We know that He governs all things. We know that nothing is left to chance. Uh, We know that there are no rogue stars outside of God's control. We also know that God is leading the wise men elsewhere in the passage as they're visited a couple times in a dream. So it's easy to see God is the one leading the wise men to Jesus. What other ways do we see God's sovereignty and His providence on display in the text? Any thoughts? I have some. We see that God is sovereign over kings and kingdoms. So in both of the birth narratives in the Gospels, we have this one in Matthew, we have another one in Luke chapter 2, it is no accident that kings are mentioned in both places. In Matthew 2 we see Herod, king of the Jews. In Luke 2 we see Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor of Rome. These were kings with great power and authority. Uh, Caesar Augustus was likely the richest and most powerful man in the world at that time. He was the leader of the most powerful kingdom in the world, the the Roman Empire. But Jesus is the King of Kings. And uh, He's the King of the Kingdom of God. He is sovereign over kings and kingdoms, over nations. And that's one of the things that we're to pick up on here. So notice in Matthew 2 that there are multiple times that prophecies from hundreds of years prior were fulfilled in the, in the events of this chapter. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, as the prophets foretold. That was prophesied in Micah chapter 2 uh, in the Old Testament. Verse 15, Jesus being in Egypt. That was prophesied in Hosea chapter 11. Verses 17 and 18, the prophecy of lamentation for the children from Jeremiah 31. And it was fulfilled as Herod senselessly killed Uh, the children. Verse 23, the family going back to Nazareth so that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. 
Now, I don't know if there is a specific reference of that in the Old Testament, but it's thought that what is in mind are the uh, prophecies in Isaiah where Jesus would be despised. That's mentioned elsewhere in the Gospels. You know, people of Nazareth, they were nothing. And uh, so maybe that's what they're talking about. But the point, in all of this that's happening, God's plan is coming to pass. God is governing all of this to bring to fruition the things that He promised long ago. God is in control. He governs all things, even kings and kingdoms, to accomplish His purposes exactly as He said He would for the redemption of His people. So if you think about it, with Caesar Augustus, again, the most powerful man, uh, the leader of the most powerful kingdom in the world at that time, how do we see God's sovereign control over Augustus? Anyone want to take a stab? Calling for the census. Okay. Which was, uh, you want to follow that up? That's right. And which was a fulfillment of prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Right? So, what is happening is we see in our Matthew passage that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We see that the birth in Bethlehem was fulfillment of prophecy that was mentioned long ago, hundreds of years prior. And how did that birth in Bethlehem come about? Well, we see that Caesar Augustus in Luke 2 decreed that the whole world should have to go to their hometown for a census... He's going to tax them. He's going to take some of their money. So Joseph and Mary, they go from Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea, some 70 plus miles on foot, late term, you know, uh, about to give birth. Some can appreciate that. But uh, while they're there, Jesus just happens to be born. It didn't just happen to come about that way. God is sovereign over the kings and the kingdoms. Little did Caesar Augustus know that the God of the universe led him to take that census, and that was the way that God was guiding Joseph and Mary uh, in His perfect providence to Bethlehem so that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem where God said He would be born hundreds of years prior. No pregnant woman in her right mind is going to uh, travel that distance unless she has to. And, uh, you know, that's... There's going to be a fight if Joseph suggests that. But when Caesar suggests that, you don't talk back. You just do what you're told. All the while, God governing it to accomplish His purpose just as He said He would. Nothing is outside of God's control. He works all things for His glory to accomplish His purposes for the ultimate good of His people. So, um, connect this back to what we talked about last week. God's plan, simply put, is to save the world in Christ. People from every tribe, every language, every nation, every people group. Uh, Think about the grace and mercy that is overflowing as God sovereignly works out His plan. So if God's providence is a river running through time and He has a particular course that He's charting, then we need to think about the fact that the banks are always overflowing with grace and mercy and love for mankind. He's not this tyrant ruler God in the sky accomplishing His purposes uh, to spite 
you know, mankind, but He's blessing mankind with His grace and mercy and love. He has come to save. So also think about the fact uh, that while Matthew 2 and Luke 2 are showing God's sovereign control and His providential care for the events surrounding Jesus' first coming, His birth, the, the first advent, we need to remember that we shouldn't think about the first coming without thinking about the second coming. Because Jesus was born in the world to die for our sins, to rise from the grave. He rose from the grave to rule over everything as the King of the kingdom of God, to restore all that has been broken and lost, and He will fully and finally restore all that has been broken and lost when He returns again. So the Lord sovereignly controlled everything from the cradle to the cross. He continues to govern everything from the resurrection until His return. And the ends to which He governs are glorious, overflowing, with grace and mercy. Again, the salvation of the whole world. People from every tribe, every language, every nation, every people group. As Will mentioned last week in our interview, in Revelation 7, it says that there are so many people that we can't count that high. Uh, He truly is spilling over His grace and mercy and love uh, into the whole world. Now, we're not there yet. So, there is still great darkness on display in our passage, right? There are more minor issues like frustrated plans, and I mean, this was probably significant frustration as uh, Mary and Joseph go 70 plus miles to Nazareth, uh, from Nazareth to Bethlehem for the, for the census. She's way pregnant and gives birth when they get there. Then you have the much darker issues in the passage, like the devastating influence of Herod, as is displayed in the slaughter of innocent children. But we must cling to the hope that is on display amidst the darkness in the passage. Jesus is the light of the world. The light has come to shine in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. It cannot overcome it. It will not overcome it. Now, the darkness is doing all that it can to overcome it. But all the while, God is governing all things, even the most horrific tragedies, to shine His light in the darkness, to pour out His grace and mercy and love in Jesus Christ. So we look up from the text, and we look out at our world, and it's a world of present darkness. We still have the minor issues, like frustrated plans. We have the more devastating issues, like wicked leaders who kill innocent children, whether killed in the womb in a so-called health clinic in the United States of America or killed in the streets of Aleppo, Syria. Our world is still one of weeping and lamentation as it was in Christ's day and for all sorts of reasons. A world, again, where I just officiated a funeral for a 46-year-old woman who was healthy one second and gone the next. Uh, the wife of a man who has said he is free-falling in his grief 
the mother of a 14-year-old and 11-year-old boy who, you know, when you see them, they're boys. They're small. They're young. They need their mom. And she was an able mother who loved them so well. I don't pretend to understand why these things happen the way they do. But I cling to the fact that God is indeed sovereign over everything, in everything, through everything, uh, for His perfect ends. I know that He governs all things, big and small, toward the end of displaying His glory, His grace, His mercy, His love, and the salvation of the world in Jesus Christ. The wicked will be judged in due time, and the people of God saved by the grace of God, assembled at the throne of Jesus Christ with no more sin, no more wicked rulers, no more pain, no more death. And in the meantime, we're, we're somewhere in the in-between. We simply have to get on board. We, we see at Christmas that the King was born. And He was born to die, but to rise and to rule and to reign. He was born that we would worship Him, that we would serve Him, Uh, that we would trust Him, that we would trust that His sovereign plan is indeed perfect and is indeed overflowing with grace and mercy and goodness and glory. I'm going to close with an illustration. Uh, Some of you have heard this, but I think that it's fitting to use here again. And it's about a story that I heard of a teenage girl who died from cancer. Uh, After she died, her friends and family read a notebook that she was keeping with a bunch of Bible verses that had comforted her in her suffering while she was dying. She died at like 14 years old. But as they're reading the notebook, uh, they found a note card in the middle of it all, again, filled with Bible verses, and they find a note card, and all it says on the note card is, the moon is round. And they think this is kind of strange. I don't think that's a Bible verse. Uh, They didn't really understand it at first, but the more that they pieced it together, it became clear. When it's dark, and we only see a sliver of the moon, because the clouds, storms, for whatever reason, we can only see a sliver of the moon, we still know that the moon is round. And in the same way, when we're living in the darkness, and we don't understand what God is doing, when we can only see a sliver, we cannot understand what possible purpose there could be in such devastation as is on display in our text, as is on display in our world today. We remember that God is good. We remember that though the darkness is not good, God's eternal plans and purposes are good. We remember that God is sovereign. Nothing is outside of His control. We remember that He works all things, even the worst things, for the good of those that love Him. We remember that He is with us. The baby to be born be called Emmanuel. God with us. We remember that He was born to rescue us from our sins and to restore the brokenness that sin has caused in creation. We also remember that the rescue operation is not 
yet fully fleshed out, but we know that it was secured at the cross and that the Lord's timing is perfect, though we can't understand it. And it is in order to maximize His glory and His grace, His mercy and His love for all of mankind. I've heard it said that it's like we're under a uh, quilt that has been stitched and we see the underside with all of the strings and everything and if we could only see the beautiful tapestry that has been made, uh, we may understand a lot more. And so maybe it will be when we get there. But we look from the first advent at Christ's birth. We look through the cross. We look through the empty tomb. We look to the second advent at Christ's return to that day when we know by faith with great confidence that all things will be put right in the end. We long for the day. Now, we wish it would come when there's no more tears, there's no more sin, there's no more evil, there's no more pain, there's no more death. That day is coming when Christ returns. Until then, we trust the Lord. He, uh, he saved us from our sins and He will bring us home. Let's pray. <clears throat> Who hopes for what he sees? Lord, if we were to see it all, we would not call it hope. Uh, But we do have a, a confidence in you. A hopefulness, not not wishful thinking, but a grounded, rooted, because you have said so, hope. That you sent your son to live in our place and die for our sins, to rise from the dead, to defeat death and sin and Satan, to rule and reign over all things. Lord Jesus, we know You've been given authority over everything. We know we're in the in-between. We confess that we don't understand why things are the way they are. Uh, Maybe we understand principally, theologically, but we we struggle to comprehend how there could be good purpose being worked out amidst such tragedy. And yet, Lord, we see it as true, and we believe it is true, and we thank you that it is true. We believe that all things will indeed be put right in the end. We believe that we will see the top side of the quilt, and um, we will glory in what you've done. In the meantime, We pray that you would strengthen our faith. We believe, help our unbelief, that you would strengthen our hope in Christ and uh, that this Christmas might truly inform our hope for glory. Help us, Lord, to worship you now in the spirit and in truth. Help us to glorify you in the way that we serve you. And please do rain down your grace and peace, your hope and strength for the journey. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Does anyone have any questions or comments? We have a few minutes about uh, maybe Christmas about missions or sovereignty of God at Christmas or anything. I was thinking, I was just challenged, um, you know, we read, I've read this narrative 
tons of times, and um, and I've thought about the story and, and how you know the wise men went a different way, and then I knew they had to flee to Egypt and all of that. But just thinking about it in terms of the sovereignty of God and what and His providence, but what that would have actually looked like for Mary and Joseph. I mean, this really young couple yeah. with a baby. And by all accounts, very poor. I yeah. mean, they were sleeping in a, a stable. Yeah. Um, and instead of then making the journey back to Joseph's job and family and home, you're going to go to Egypt yeah. where you don't know anybody and don't have a job. And, like, how would you even be thinking you were going to feed your kid and your new wife and all of that like just thinking about thinking about the things that I fear yeah like um I fear awkwardness if I you know try to bring up spiritual things at the family Christmas party like that's what I fear Mm. and I let it hold me back and to think about what they faced and God working his sovereign plan, and he's working it in me and in my life and in all those little minutes in my life, the same way that he was with them going on this incredibly dangerous, Mm -hmm. awful journey. Um, Anyway, it just, it really challenged me of like the, how he was sovereign and what they were facing versus... Well, I think uh, Stephanie just taught us all how to have a quiet time. So that was, uh, seriously, one of the things that I was going to say is, you know, we've all heard the narrative like most of us many times. And so I'm just trying to give you something you can stake in the ground. Okay, God's sovereignty is providence. They're on display in this text. But ultimately, what you want is for that to become devotional with God. This is a part of my relationship with Him. This is a part of me trusting Him and hoping in Him and believing Him and following Him. And so what? how do we appropriate this in our lives? Well, we take the very uh, real circumstances that are, you know, Mary and Joseph were in the dark. They're like, seriously? Egypt? Seriously? Bethlehem? I mean, they believed God and they followed Him. And they, you know, at the same time, it's right to, to see that they would have had fears. They, they would have had very real concerns uh, about how this is all going to go. And yet it was about trusting God who is sovereign uh, and caring for them and has committed himself to them. So that's what we do. You know, you think about all the different things that are on display. Again, frustrated plans, uh, sudden moves, leaving the familiar, adoption. I mean, Joseph was an adoptive father. So there are those that that have those concerns. Uh, Child rearing, devastation, you know, hometown devastation, widespread uh, heartache and heartbreak of your friends and family members. Um, And what we're trying to do is we're, you know, enter in and relate with God in His Word praying all of this back to God. Okay, God, I see that You're sovereign. I see this is something that You want me to see. All these prophecies being fulfilled and all this crazy happening. You're governing all of this. But 
That's what we should do, is then bring our fears and our concerns and our anxieties into that and appropriate the truth of God's sovereignty and His providence and His care for us that He entered in with us. Very good. Anyone else? That's hard to beat. Um, go ahead. Even uh, it's not even his sovereignty isn't even limited to it. Just that he knows about the bad things that are happening and that he allows them to happen. But you can, can even see that, like through the the ambition of Caesar, uh, the pride of Caesar, selfishness for more taxes for poor people, that he uses that to complete his prophecy. And then through Herod's self-preservation, he uses that sin right. to complete his prophecy. So. Even in, uh, it's not even, I don't think our position always has to even be, God, I hope that you, I know that you know about this, uh, please just get it through us, or please just get us through this, but God, accomplish your will through this. Yeah. Uh, not, it's not limited to, like, this passive sovereignty, it's an active fleshing out of his will. Yeah. Uh, even through sin, in broad scale. You, these times are in your hand and you are you know, uh, wielding your perfect providence in and through them. Which brings up a whole host of questions uh, that we don't have the answers to in terms of how could... But we see that in you know, the greatest example. I go back to again and again, but it's the cross. You know, you killed Jesus, he says in Acts 2, uh, and you're wicked for doing it. But you know, God killed Jesus for the salvation of the world. I'm paraphrasing. I mean, you did this and you're responsible for this. That's the thing. With, with Herod's wickedness and, and uh, uh, Caesar's pride and all these different things, everyone has their own responsibility for their sin and yet uh, God works out His plan in and through that. You meant it for evil, Joseph said, but God meant it for good. So there was something human going on here and yet something that God was doing all the while. Um, that's a very important point. He's not just off able to take these things, but actively engaged in these things, governing toward His perfect ends. Anyone else? Okay, I'm trying to get better at giving us time to get to church. Uh, I haven't been reprimanded, but... You know, we did talk as a staff last week about the importance of corporate worship and arrival on time and all of that. So, we have. Um, Who led that discussion? Uh, well, it was a staff retreat. It was one point of many. We had a good Jim Umoff uh, did, and you know, yeah. So he, uh, but I, I respect that and and want to uh, do better than I've done at giving us time. So we have 15 minutes. You can get there in 15 minutes and still be one minute early. Um, But, you know, maybe get there in 13 minutes with some (laughs) anticipation. All right. Merry Christmas.